One thing we ask of you, one thing that we desire, that as we worship you, Lord, come and change our
That's new. Is that new? That was good. Did y'all learn that tonight? Y'all did good. Y'all did good. It's like a tie bow up here with James in it. I love it, man. Hey, we're excited you guys are here tonight. Had a great, great night of visitation as well. And uh, students went out and did some awesome visiting. So we appreciate you guys doing that. And uh, just had a great, great time tonight. So we want to begin, obviously, with a word of prayer. So let's bow together. Father, we're thankful uh, for the heartbeat, really, of this church family, a desire to get outside the walls and minister to people. And God, thank you for the open doors that we had tonight to be able to visit, uh, to share the gospel in some homes, and to pray for people who were in need. And God, even some of the homebound that our students had an opportunity to minister to and to pray with and encourage. God, I just thank you for their due diligence in serving. God, thank you for the leadership uh, that take that uh, to the next level. And Father, I just pray tonight as we've gathered together that our hearts will be in tune for your name's sake, that you would speak clearly to us and you would continue to use your word to make us more like your son. And even as we pray this morning, we continue to pray that you would sanctify our fellowship, make us more like your son Jesus, that we would reflect his attitude, his activity, Uh, in our current fellowship, God, that we would always be seeking out those who don't know you personally, that we might share the good news of the gospel, and then also always seeking to disciple others, that they might come to know you better. And Father, even tonight as we gather together to worship, we know that uh, there are a great many uh, children who are being discipled in your word in Awanas. God, I thank you for those leaders. I want to pray for them now that you'd give them continued encouragement, continued stamina to do your will in that particular area. And pray for those children, God, that some of them would come to know you at an early age. Uh, God, I also want to pray that you would raise up uh, great men of God out of that ministry. You'd raise up great women of God out of that ministry who'd be used to shake the nations for your kingdom's sake and for your glory. And now tonight, Lord, open our hearts. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth as we continue to learn together how to genuinely follow you in our day-to-day walks. And God, thank you that as we study Luke's gospel, we continue to learn more and more about who you are, about what you've called us to, and how to live. And so, Lord, we just um, invite you into this place tonight. And Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, minister to us as you see fit, and we'll give you glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, my strength. 
whatever it is that we're lifting to you tonight, Father. As we lift our self to you tonight, we have to do that individually, knowing that you are our refuge and you are our strength. 
Father, as we seek you tonight, as we pour our heart out before you, Lord, as a drink offering, as Paul said, Lord, exhausting every, everything that we are, everything that we have, giving it all and pouring it to you, lifting it up as a living sacrifice to be holy and acceptable to you, God. That's our heart's desire. Lord, I'm thankful for these that have gathered tonight to, to lift you up, to hear your word, to grow in our walk with you. Lord, we are ones that can truly, truly say, Lord, we have been at places where we have lost faith, where we've lost trust. But Lord, tonight, I pray that as we've been encouraged to say, Lord, I lift my hands as a testimony to you. I lift it to believe again that you are our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble. Oh, Father, thank you for the freedom that we have in you to bless you, to honor you. Thank you that we can freely do it in this place. And I'm so grateful for those who desire to do that. May we be encouraged tonight as we hear your word to walk in that truth and to go wherever you say for us to go, no matter how rocky, how hilly, how thorny it may be. Help us to be faithful to walk that path. I lift my hands to believe again Cause you are my refuge, you are my strength As I pour out my heart these things I remember you are faithful God forever He's a faithful God Amen <clears throat> Thank you guys This evening Y'all let them know how much you appreciate them Thank you <laughs> That's right <clears throat> You brought a Bible with you You can go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 4 This evening Luke chapter 4 As we continue our series entitled Astonished uh, Very excited as well about tonight And what the Lord's teaching me In Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 14 All the way through verse 30. So we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, but uh, confident the Lord will get us through it. So Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 14. You've got that. Go ahead and stand with me in honor of God's Word. And as you're standing there with your Bibles open, let me encourage you uh, to be in prayer. Uh, Brandon Rolney, our new student pastor, will actually be in the house uh, Wednesday. So be praying for he and Jancy. They've got a lot of things going on, obviously a house to sell and those kinds of things. So lift them up this week and, and just pray that Wednesday night will be the first night he gets to hang out with the students officially, that it would just be a great, great night. And then Lord willing, uh, things will start get. Uh, start getting cranked down in the lower level uh, February 1st, which also will be this Wednesday as they start the building process there. So you may want to pray for that as well. That will be beneficial to say the least. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. You've got it in front of you. Say amen. amen. The Bible says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as he was accustomed. He entered a synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. 
And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Uh, whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on, uh, on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went his way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And, you know, what an awesome text this is. And, I just pray tonight that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd speak plainly to each one of our hearts. And God, I pray as well that we would learn with fresh eyes what you're doing in your life and ministry, that we might better understand you, better follow you, and better trace your footsteps. And so God, tonight, do a great work and speak to hearts, and we'll give you glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Well, so far, we've witnessed Jesus be baptized. We've also seen Jesus tempted. Tonight, we begin to follow Jesus as his public ministry truly begins. Jesus started his teaching in the synagogues of the Galilean landscape. Just a brief statement concerning a synagogue to get our minds thinking about the place. The synagogue of the New Testament era had its roots in the time after Solomon's temple was destroyed and the people of Judah went into Babylonian exile. Local worship and instruction became necessary. Even after Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, places of local worship continued, and these local places of worship were called synagogues. Synagogues existed wherever Jews lived. In fact, most communities of any side had at least one synagogue located in them. Some had several. A synagogue was to be established wherever there was as many as 10 Jewish men. A synagogue had to be located close enough for faithful Jews to attend without breaking the Sabbath by exceeding the distance the rabbis allowed one to walk on the Sabbath day. A typical service considered, uh, consisted of a recitation of the Shema, uh, basically, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have prayers. They would have scripture reading from the law and the prophets. Then there would be a sermon, and then there would be a benediction or a closing prayer. Now, Luke tells us in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. Jesus, the God-man, experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. 
as we learn in our study of the book of Philippians, and I mentioned it this morning, but Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Jesus, as a man, submitted and relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit to lead him and to use him as a tool under the sovereign will of God the Father. Now, you may remember Jesus speaks in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 30, saying this, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, began teaching in their synagogues. He spoke with the authority of God upon his life. When he taught, because Jesus says in John 12 and 49, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I speak, he says, just as the Father has told me. Therefore, as Jesus spoke, he was a direct mouthpiece of the Father and served, listen, as the greatest prophet to ever walk the face of the earth. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it speaks to the fact that Jesus was a greater prophet than Moses, ultimately because Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Now, the people who listened to Jesus teach were overwhelmed by him. Verse 15 tells us that he was praised by all. And the word praised, it means that Jesus was overwhelmingly honored by all of those who were listening to him speak. However, things radically changed when the Lord Jesus went back to his hometown in Nazareth. Uh, let's note a few truths about these next few verses in Luke's gospel together. But before I give you the observations, what I want to do is invite you to sit in the synagogue tonight with the Jewish men and the Jewish women. Don't allow your mind to race to the end of this particular narrative, but let it unfold itself in front of you as if for the very first time. What I want to challenge you to do tonight is I want you to listen to this particular narrative as a Jew. Hear it from a Jewish standpoint, a Jewish point of view. So what do we find about this text? Well, first of all, we would note that Jesus spoke as a prophet. The Paphrite scroll was handed to Jesus that day in Nazareth. He opened it to Isaiah's prophecy and he read, it's there in your Bible, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery uh, of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, those listening to this word read by Jesus in the synagogue that day would have undoubtedly nodded their heads in agreement and even said amen. So as Jesus is reading this particular text, the people in the synagogue are sitting there, they're agreeing, amen, they know that text of scripture. This was a text that spoke about the promise coming of the Messiah King of Israel. They studied this text and most likely heard sermons on the text over the years in the synagogue. It served as a passage of great hope for Israel as they faced the Roman invasion of their way of life and increasing oppression from the government this was a passage that they would cling to now the text signifies realities about the Messiah King first the Spirit of the Lord will be upon this new King uh, they knew from Old Testament scripture that the Spirit of God would come mightily upon people and give them supernatural power to accomplish great things their minds 
As this text is being read and they hear the idea that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, their minds could have raced to recall how the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon in the Old Testament, giving him strength and valor to wage military campaigns. They could have remembered Samson, of whom the Spirit of God gave great strength. They could have remembered how the Spirit of God was upon Saul, the first king of Israel. Then the Spirit of God departed Saul, and the Bible says that the Spirit landed upon David, the new king of Israel. They would have considered Solomon, of whom the Spirit of God gave great wisdom unlike any person to have ever lived. They could have remembered how the Spirit of God used Elijah, the prophet, and actually moved him from one location to another. As well, Elisha knew the supernatural enablement of Elijah to prophesy and even perform miracles. So they could have thought about Ezekiel. They could have thought about Daniel or many other Old Testament uh, individuals upon whom the Spirit of God rested and they were empowered to do great things. Now, it only makes logical sense When Jewish men and women study the Old Testament prophecies, that indeed the coming Messiah would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus read the text, you can sense hope welling up in the listeners. Then he reads, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You know, they longed for the day when the Messiah King would come and preach good news to the poor. Those in Nazareth, by the way, this town was not known for its affluent members. Rather, they were indeed materially poor. They must have thought, I cannot wait for good news to come to us from this Messiah. Jesus' eyes continued to look over the scroll as Isaiah's prophecy came out. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Now, just the thought of what is taking place here would have made the Jewish listener's heart skip a beat. Freedom. A freedom from Rome, sight to the blind, finally able to see the great city of Jerusalem restored to full glory. Anticipation in their hearts. Jesus reads the next phrase, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now this was known as the year of Jubilee in Jewish history. The 50th year in a cycle of sabbatical years observed in ancient Israel. When land that had been leased by families to avert poverty reverted to its original owners. And indentured Israelite servants were then set free on this great year of Jubilee. The sounding of the ram's horn throughout the land inaugurated the year of Jubilee, which began on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the 7th month, somewhere around September or October on our calendar. The year of Jubilee brought to a close a cycle of seven sabbatical years. It's found for us in Leviticus 25, Exodus 23. God decreed that after every six years of planting the land, the seventh year would be a Sabbath in which the land and all the people and animals who worked it rested. Humans and animals then lived off the abundance of the sixth year's harvest. Again, Leviticus 25 is where that's recorded. And then one commentary said this, and I liked it. The proclamation of Jubilee had implications for Israelite society in the areas of land tenure and human servitude. While each of the 12 tribes had been assigned a portion of land upon entering Canaan, God had made it clear that the land belonged to him alone and that the people sojourned there at his pleasure. Yet God's ownership did not preclude the Israelites from selling or leasing land holdings among themselves, particularly to avoid poverty. 
Now, in short, during this great year of favor, all the Israelites were given back their ancestral land, and all the Israelite slaves were actually freed. Basically, this year of Jubilee was like a brand new start. Now, the thought of the Israelites during those days was that the Messiah King would usher in this great time. Under his leadership, he would free everyone and reestablish them back to their ancestral roots. They could not wait for it. They longed for it. The prophecy of Isaiah, which Jesus read, would have been like sweet music to their ears. And then in verse 20 of Luke's gospel, he closed the book. Speaking of Jesus, he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Doubtless they had heard about Jesus and his phenomenal ability to teach and to preach the scriptures. They had heard even about his ability to do great miracles. Seeing them sitting there with arms folded. You've got to see this in your mind's eye uh, like I was when I was studying it. Are y'all with me? Say yes. So see them sitting there with their arms folded, leaning back on their bench until Jesus sat down. Then their eyes glued to him. They unfolded their arms. They leaned in. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Those in the back of that small synagogue, they turned their heads, allowing their ear to be the first thing that caught the sound of his voice. They are anticipating his message. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, unless we really put ourselves in the synagogue on that day, we don't understand the weight of what has just been said. This would have been met with stunned silence for a moment. The men in the room would have begun to look around at one another like, did he just say what I think that he said? Their eyes would have gotten big. Some of their jaws would have dropped. Did he really say this? Verse 22, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Now, I read this and my mind immediately went to Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are the words to my taste. Your words, O Lord, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The teaching of Jesus, the great prophet of God the Father, when he spoke, it was like honey to those who believed. It was a taste that far outtaste any delight this world can offer up. He spoke as a prophet. However, notice what happens next. He was rejected as a prophet. Is this not Joseph's son? The question would have interrupted any thought that Jesus could be the Messiah. They would have started thinking, wait a minute, his dad is just a carpenter. In fact, some of them probably began to say, I remember Jesus when he was just a boy. He used to play with my son. There's no way this is the Messiah. This is just Jesus of Nazareth. One commentator puts it like this, and I quote, He says God's Spirit has brought him to us. He has news that the poor, impoverished people have been waiting for. Does that mean he thinks he's the Messiah? People in prison, he's going to free. The blind people, he's going to make them see. Our oppressed nation, he'll release them from captivity. He's going to renew our strength. Today's the day of that. This is the year God will show favor and grace on his people. Just a young man from Nazareth, he can do all of this? Please. Verse 23. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus understood that the people who were once impressed with him, then were offended by him. Also, they would begin to demand of him. 
They would want Jesus to perform the same miracles in Nazareth that they had heard about from the previous city as he had preached. This really became a similar temptation of the devil. Prove yourself to be the Messiah. However, Jesus would have nothing to do with it. In fact, he goes forward to say in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Now why is this? Uh, the reason that Jesus was rejected was because they were all too familiar with him. They knew him as a child. They knew him as Joseph's son. The prior knowledge of him actually caused them to stumble over the fact that he could and was the Messiah. Their familiarity of Jesus blinded their eyes to the fulfillment of prophecy in the person of Jesus, namely that he indeed was the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Isaiah text which he had just read. Jesus who was rejected by his hometown, would only be a foreshadowing. This time would only be a foreshadowing of what Israel would do with the Messiah of God when they ultimately would reject him. For Israel would reject Jesus and actually call for his crucifixion. While on the cross, they would yell, you healed others, why not heal yourself? However, Jesus, God's son, the great prophet, actually prophesied that the Messiah would go to minister outside the realm of Israel and bring Gentiles into the kingdom. Now, if you're a Gentile, that will be good news for you. If you ain't a Jew, you is a Gentile, all right? So he speaks about this beginning in verse 25. Notice your text again. But I say to you the truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. When a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Don't miss this fact. Jesus is telling the people of Nazareth that he indeed is a prophet. He equates himself with two of the most well-known prophets of Jewish history, Elijah and Elisha. What he's saying is simply, in the same way that these two prophets left Israel to minister to Gentiles, that's what I'm going to do also. I will leave Israel and minister to Gentiles, and they will experience the promise of the great Messiah. Now take yourself back to the synagogue for just a moment. Sit there with those Jewish men and women. Sitting there, all of us together. Remember how excited we were when we heard Jesus was going to be the speaker? We'd heard about him, man. He was, he was awesome. Good news. Couldn't wait. Place is packed. Can't wait to hear this guy teach. We anticipated, filled with hope. But then some started doubting. Jesus' claim to be the fulfillment of the prophecy. And now that we've heard Jesus is going to those dogs, the Gentiles, and claim that God sent the Messiah to the Gentiles too, this Messiah isn't coming for the undesirables. There's no way. He's coming for the people of God. He's coming for us. Now there are people beginning to get angry. There's no way this is a prophet of God. Somebody pipes up. You've got to imagine this. They shout it loudly with some conviction and great force in the synagogue. Let's kill this false prophet. Who's he think he is? Let's put him to death. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Throw him off the cliff. Verse 28 and 29, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Isn't that amazing? That was just the shortest sermon in the world, was it not? Jesus just simply said today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Throw him off the cliff. At first, they, they could not wait to hear him. Now they're all fired up with rage. 
They got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. The prophet was rejected in his own hometown. A few things for us tonight, very quickly, and I give these as statements, then I want to bring it back very quickly as well. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. When you read the Old Testament, look for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You'll find him there. In fact, Jesus uh, said in the scriptures, it's where you find life, it's where you find me. Jesus came, and listen, he is still searching out what may be considered undesirables. And I love the fact that Jesus came for Gentiles. And I love the fact that he would go outside Israel to reach out to us, showing his great desire for the nations, his love for humanity. And by the way, the Old Testament people, Israel, they were supposed to be a mouthpiece for God to lost nations. But instead, they began to close themselves off and not share the glory of God with those who were outside of Israel. And by the way, you just begin to study the history of Jesus' lineage, and guess what you'll find? Some Gentiles. <laughs> it's amazing how God was saving so many Gentiles of the Old Testament, and yet they totally missed it. But you know, it also makes us begin to think we are his followers, you and I, following Jesus. Are we willing to search out those that society considers undesirable? Are we willing to go outside of the norm who we would consider people like us to share the good news of the gospel? And I would say if we are not doing this, we are actually rejecting the ministry of Jesus. It's what he did. It's what we ought to be doing. And then I could go a step further and ask, has Jesus become so familiar to us that we doubt his power to work in our midst? Are we limiting the ministry of God as a church because of our collective unbelief? And then rea reality is we could say it like this. Are we in some ways rejecting Jesus, the prophet, just as they did in the synagogue? You know, one of the wild things to me about studying the life of Jesus through the Gospels is how many times Jesus focuses, focuses, focuses on their faith. You of little faith, you of little faith, why are you doubting me? Why are you doubting? And as he looks at your life and he looks at my life, he, the whole process is to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our walk with him so that we will continue to trust him. Listen, more and more and more. How often Jesus would look at me and say, Levi, you have little faith. Why are you down? You don't think I can do that? That year of Jubilee, remember me talking about it a moment ago? I know I spent some time on that. I kind of did that on purpose. It's unique because a ram's horn would actually signify that the year of Jubilee was going to happen. Are y'all listening? Say yes. I'm going to try to run all the way through a bunch of stuff here. Jesus came as prophet. They rejected him, put him on a cross. But thankfully, as part of God's plan, he entered into heaven as our priest. When he comes again, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming as king of kings, lord of lords. I know he's king of kings now. 
but he's coming. Prophet, priest, and king. That's his ministry. That's what he's up to. So when he comes back again, well, guess what happens, which is so uh, unique. And uh, I want to try to very quickly fit this into uh, an eschatological framework so you and I can see it. But you have the rapture of the New Testament church, according to the Bible. And once the New Testament church is with Jesus in heaven, we're, we're with him for like seven years. And basically, we're hanging out at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're getting rewarded. But on earth, all of these judgments are being poured out on the earth. But in that time, guess what God is doing by his grace, which is just remarkable. God is actually drawing Israel back to himself. And he's doing this, and he's, and he's bringing them all in. And so everybody's going back to Jerusalem, and all the Jews are there, and it's just phenomenal. Matter of fact, the first three and a half years are just great. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Antichrist sits down on the, uh, the seat of the throne of God in the temple and claims himself to be God, and that's not good. Are y'all listening? And so at that moment, man, it's just wild. you got the bold judgments, the sealed judgments, all those things in Revelation just pouring out. And then everybody, all the nations, gather around Israel to actually destroy Israel and to use, you know, a, a phrase that we hear in political terms today, to wipe Israel off the map. That's what they're going to do. It's their hearts. But in that moment, Jesus is going to come back. That's pretty good, right? And, you know, Zechariah talks about that, too, in the Old Testament. He's like, and Israel will look upon him. And this is so awesome. This is in the Old Testament before crucifixion was even thought about. Israel will look upon him in whom they had pierced. And they will weep and they will mourn. So Jesus will come back. And you know what's neat about that? You, y'all a bunch of Gentiles? Y'all with me? We're saved. Guess what? We're coming back with him. That's legit, isn't it? So we're coming back with him. And then whenever he comes, what he does is just by the word of his mouth, he totally gets rid of all the nations, and he saves, as the Bible says in Romans uh, 9, he saves all of Israel. He brings Israel back to himself, sets up a millennial kingdom, and there you and I rule and reign with him. That's going to be a great year of Jubilee, I believe. You talk about some freedom. But here's what's unique. And we'll talk about this later on. Y'all with me? I know there's a lot of stuff going on here. Jesus, in this text and in, the, in his life and ministry, he came with the kingdom, but they rejected him. Now, somewhere in God's divine plan, I ain't figured it out because I ain't God. Are y'all with me? But somewhere in God's divine plan, the rejection was going to occur. And then God, by his grace, was just going to sweep a whole bunch of Gentiles into the thing. So, so it's just what God does. He saves people. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? And you know what else is crazy? Is he's still saving people. And then, to go a step further in the craziness, he invites all of us to be a part of what he's doing. Saving people. He said, you, you come in, you be my ambassador. You speak on behalf of heaven on my behalf. And, and it will be like God himself is begging through you, calling people to salvation. So we're all a part of this. Um, how shall I end it? I will end it this way. Don't get so uh, mentally locked into your day-to-day routine that you miss the grand plan of what God is up to in history. Don't miss that. That's what Christian living is all about. Walking with the Lord, sharing the gospel, and seeing, and listen, seeing Jew and Gentile get saved. That's pretty cool, isn't it?
I, I always thought it was neat, too, that the, the Jewish culture would call Gentile dogs. But Jesus would call them sheep. Is that a preach? Y'all out there? Calling us in. And praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name. Um,